Hello everyone, Matt here and welcome to Looking Back at Lost, where each week I look at another episode of ABC's Lost to see how that episode fits into the series as a whole. Today, I'll be looking at episode 515, entitled Follow the Leader. This is the 101st episode of the series, and there are 20 to go. A quick feedback reminder, you can always share your thoughts about uh, previous podcast episodes and upcoming Lost episodes by uh, saying hello to me on Twitter, where I'm looking back lost, sending an email to lookingbackatlost at gmail.com, visiting the webpage, lookingbackatlost.podbean.com and leaving a comment there. Or last but not least, calling the listener line 732-707-1815. And I certainly look forward to sharing uh, some feedback from the last week or two in uh, next week's episode. Apologies that it's not sooner, just uh, the way the schedule of the week has gone. But anyhow, the good news is that allows us to now jump into the Wikipedia summary for this episode, which starts with uh, saying, In 1977, following the events of the previous episode, The Variable, Jack and Kate witness Eloise kill her son Daniel Faraday in the other's camp. As Jack and Kate debate whether they should follow through with Faraday's plan to detonate the hydrogen bomb in order to change future events, they're attacked and captured by Charles Widmore. Eloise believes their claim of being from the future and decides to take Jack's advice to detonate the bomb. They travel with Richard to a pond, which has an underwater entry to a series of tunnels in which the bomb is stored. The tunnels lie beneath the site of the Dharma Initiative's barracks. Kate does not want to take part in Jack's plan and leaves. However, an other refuses to let her go, prompting an unseen, then seen, Saeed to shoot the other. Saeed agrees to Jack's plan, but Kate still does not, and compares Jack to John Locke, whom Jack once regarded as crazy. She leaves to the barracks, and the others enter the tunnels. At the Dharma Initiative barracks, Sawyer and Juliet are being held captive by Horace, Stuart Radzinski, and Phil. Sawyer does not answer any of Radzinski's questions, even after he is severely beaten and witnesses Phil strike Juliet. Meanwhile, Dr. Pierre Chang confronts Hurley, Miles, and Jin as they ready their escape to the beach. He wants to know if Faraday was correct. Chang asks Hurley time-specific questions which he fails to answer correctly. Hurley then concedes that they are from the future. Miles confirms that he is Chang's son and supports Faraday's request for the island to be evacuated. Chang informs Horace and Radzinski of this, and Sawyer makes a deal to leave the island on the submarine in exchange for telling them what they want to hear. Sawyer and Juliet, followed by Kate, are placed aboard the submarine in handcuffs, and the sub departs. In 2007, following the events of the episode Dead is Dead, Locke meets with Richard at the other's camp and tells him that he now has a purpose. Sun confronts Richard about the fate of her husband and the other survivors stranded in the past. 
Richard grimly informs her that he watched them all die. Locke, Richard, and Ben travel to the location that the time-jumping Locke will appear so that Richard can remove the bullet from his leg and tell him what needs to be done as seen in Because You Left. They return to camp where Locke speaks to the others and tells them that they are going to take a trip to see Jacob, from whom they take orders but have never met. Locke tells Son that Jacob will know how to save their friends. However, he later admits to Ben that his plan is not to ask Jacob for help, but to kill him. And with that, let's now get into my thoughts about the episode. Uh, it's certainly a... Uh, it's one of those episodes that goes by fast. It's a lot of um, not exactly big-time resolution, but it certainly is, as you might expect, it's setting things up for the finale. It's moving a lot of pieces quickly, and it's one of those episodes that makes me certainly think back to uh, last week's podcast, uh, where uh, we were discussing some of the, the feedback from iTunes and um, the complaint that sometimes the podcast is just a big recap itself. This is one of those episodes where there's not necessarily, you know, there's not a ton of mystery. There's not a ton of, uh, of intrigue. There's not a ton of character motivation. I mean, yes, the characters are motivated by things, but it's mostly uh, character movement. It's not, you know, oh, why does somebody make that sacrifice? It's why does somebody start to discuss the possibility of making a sacrifice in a later episode? Anyhow, let's talk about the episode. Uh, there's an up-tempo recap of Locke's death as it starts. Uh, we also see his return, the idea that dead is dead, and Dan's anti-incident anti plan. And um, you might think that we're about to see Dan's death. However, in very, very unusual fashion, the episode starts directly in last week's episode. This is a trick that, uh, as I've mentioned before, that uh, Alias uh, did quite frequently. And um, I wonder why more shows don't do it. I think I suspect why, because it's a little, um, it's a little jarring just to pick up with completely old footage in a new episode. But you know, you get over it. Um, that that you know, start from last week is Dan forcing the hand of the others. Though the scene shifts to Kate and Jack's point of view. Uh, complete, by the way, with Kate almost getting hit in the face with a plant. I'm not quite sure why they used that take and not another take, because you could just see Evangeline Lilly trying to stay in character and, and keep keep talking to Jack while she's moving out of the way of the plant. You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, hope you liked my acting there. Um, we don't see Dan's death this time. Uh, we You know, it, it's heard off camera. But we do see the young, curly-haired Widmore catch Jack and Kate. Uh, and uh, Jack gets quite the boot to the face. Um, it's, it's a good kick, and there's a lot of blood after it. There's a lot of blood that sells kind of the ouchie of it. With that, there's a quick pop back to the other's camp with a dead Dan and Eloise reading the journal entry written uh, by herself to her son. A very timey-wimey sort of moment here. Um, it's also, I always feel for these actors who, you know, who get the script. I don't know how many weeks uh, ahead of time, ahead of the episode that they're shooting. Obviously not too far ahead. Um, I'd imagine it's, you know, 10 days, two weeks, something like that, if that. Um, 
they get it they find out oh you're being you're being killed off or they've had the conversation just just previous to getting the script that sort of thing it's kind of oh they're the show's letting me go and then they get killed off and there's all there's the whole pathos of really selling your character as as you know in their final moments in life all that that must must uh must uh, imply you know as an actor it's this moment that you can't possibly have have drawn upon yourself and all this wonderful kind of acting moment the end of the character then you know you go back to work the next day uh having died in episode 514 you show up for 515 you uh put on your costume they do your hair they do your makeup they take you out to the location they get the lights set up the cameras set up the crew the microphone they have you lay down and they say action and your job is to lay there and maybe you get to act when, while holding your breath, the guest star of the week runs her hand over your face and you close your eyes while holding your breath. What it must be like to play dead. Anyhow, um, young Widmore, <laughs> back to this episode, young Widmore starts to uh, talk to Kate and Jack, and we learn very quickly that Eloise has already uh, deduced that they're not Dharma. They're wearing Dharma, but they're not Dharma. Widmore asks where they're from. And at this wonderful, wonderful moment, the show has its, you know, just enough cojones by cutting to a black screen. So, you know, where are they from? Cut to a black screen with white text 30 years later. It's just, it's, it's, it's dramatic in its scope. It's not the first time that they've done that sort of thing, but go for it while you can. While there are these divergent timelines go for it and what is 30 years later we see richard working on a ship in a bottle uh i think that we can only assume that it's meant to be um if not literally a model of the black rock that he's working on it certainly is meant to be evocative of that to him uh first time viewers i think would just see it as oh it looks like the black rock ha 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 it's another little island cutesy thing no we know now that that was the ship that brought him here. We know that for whatever sort of diversionary uh, action, uh, you know, the, the, or you know, hobby that it is for him to be doing this, he's there's got to be some sort of conscious or subconscious reflection as to um, what brought him here. And indeed, the bottle itself is rather indicative of the island as a whole. It's this sealed off place you can barely get into, just as one can barely get into the bottle to work uh, to work on the ship in the bottle. On top of that, we can look ahead to you know being so very close to seeing the the Jacob smoky bottle metaphor, um, the notion of the the uh, the cork in the bottle preventing the evil from leaving. And if there's some sort of alternative, like not take the cork out but smash the bottle, and that's all there in this wonderful little moment as we're, you know, as we're really starting to head to um, head to the end of the series. You know, particularly insofar as any season finale, in addition to wrapping up the season, will also be propelling things to the next season. Incident Part One and Part Two looked at as a whole are in some ways a prelude uh, or a prologue to season six. So if you want to look at it like that, then this is almost the final episode of normal season five. And here we have some of those those touchstones for season six. We have a little little reference to the Black Rock, to the bottle, to the island, uh, and so forth. 
Anyhow, so here's Richard working. Smokey Locke interrupts. And there's just wonderful, wonderful acting out of Nestor Carbonell, who literally, literally cannot believe what he's seeing. The performance is nuanced to include a slight air of suspicion, even before Richard comments that Locke is somehow different. Um, we also have a similarly nuanced uh, performance at Terrio Quinn again, where his smoky lock is gleeful on second viewing. And he's why is he gleeful? He's gleeful that the charade is working. And again, it, it boggles my mind that this was not a popular theory that was out there. I know that uh, I'm pretty sure it was Mighty Tim on Twitter who had uh, responded to me just kind of commenting on Twitter saying, you know, did we possibly see, um, you know, was the theory out there, was it a hot theory that Locke was uh, was not Locke, that he was a doppelganger, that he was smoky, that it was whatever, whatever. For, for his money, Mighty Tim said no. And it just speaks to Terry O'Quinn's performance in all of these smoky Locke um, pre-reveal episodes where I think he's got to know. He's got to have been been brought in on it. But there's just this. It's so present on the rewatch that he's a different character. But it's so not present the first time. He just appears to be confident and you can argue it away as the characters do. He's looked death in the face and somehow come, come back as as you know, as some know, for Ben, you know, who knows he was dead, it's the island magic, it's this sort of thing, and it's just, um, it's just so, so good out of him. Um, anyhow, Ben and son arrive in the rear, uh, with Ben, uh, defining Richard as a kind of advisor, and a job that he's had for a very, very long time. They're just keeping that little coal alive that we know Richard is, is quite old. He's been called very, very old. We've seen him at at Locke's birth. Um, but here we are, um, kind of setting up, you know, we're still a ways away from, uh, from that, that lovely, lovely Richard episode. But, uh, it's, it's just that reminder that it's coming too. And indeed that line kickstarts the sun portion of the story, her asking, uh, that, you know, if here for a very long time, uh, you know, if, if, if that guy, if Richard remembers Jack and Kate and Hurley and Jin, and I think because the episode might have to make up for the lackluster act ends from, I don't want to say last week's episode, I don't want to confuse you since that was looking back at 100, but uh, episode 514, it's referring back to the previous, you know, lost episode, I, I would argue, um, to try to make up for these lackluster act ends that, that, that permeated 514 they make up for it with this doozy richard remembers them indeed because he watched them all die with that we get the title card then sun love everlasting doubting that it can be true when in doubt follow sun uh she's holding and playing with Jin's ring although the show wisely doesn't make a big deal out of it there's not you know insert shots of her hand playing with it close up it's just there as a prop we get it we don't need it spelled out uh and the show is prepared for you to not get it and to just move on but that smoky lock organizes Richard and Ben to go on an expedition with him uh and then we uh, flash back to Kate 
getting shoved by an other and Jack getting kicked in the face again by said other. Not a great, not a great episode for Jack's face. Uh, at this point, the writers have Jack clearly, plainly restate the central thrust of the rest of the season. Stop the incident. 815 lands. Life is better. It's a bit paint by numbers, but it's at least consistent. Jack wants to prevent the misery of his life. And uh, with that, Kate suggests that not all her time with Jack was awful. Ladies' man Jack says enough of it was. Now, to be fair, he's not specifically talking about his time with her, but she's kind of floating, you know, hey, we had some good times and at least we met. Maybe that's worth it. And, you know, Jack's blanket response is, nothing made this worth it. With that, apparently Eloise realizes that um, she too is in this scene to restate some central issues. So she enters and asks why the dead man, Dan, wanted the bomb. She recaps the previous episode of the bomb burying, uh, previous events rather, of the bomb burying and the revelation that he was her son. It's, this is the writerly moment where they're, they're setting up the episode here. They're saying, does everybody at home understand where we were and what's happening now and what we want to happen? Anyhow, as Jack explains those timey-wimey basics, I had to wonder if, for Eloise anyway, despite the kind of, you know, uh, writerly mechanism of these things need to get explained uh, to the audience and spelled out in the central, you know, uh, central conflict of the episode and how it's going to be resolved, nonetheless... I had to wonder if Eloise saw it as kind of a call to God scene. Eloise, Eloise's beginning of an acceptance of that larger temporal world and her place in it in very many ways, almost as a nun who sees the edges of the real world, the real world that's out there. The way, the way uh, you know, someone in, in a religious vocation can accept the world of physics and science and gravity and these sort of things, but has in them this faith and this, um, this, I suppose faith is the best word that there's a realer world out there besides equals MC squared. And that, you know, the math science world, there's the world, the, the, the most real world, that of, of the particular religious point of view. And I think that this is Eloise's, moment where she's getting that that quote-unquote call to god and i'm not arguing her you know i'm not arguing a literal god but kind of the god of of that natural world um that that truly um you know existing world that she didn't previously fully commit to or perhaps hadn't committed to at all before she's now seeing it as all of this kind of starts to make sense and come together and accepting that Dan was her son and that this is the way it is. And there might need to be sacrifices, but the, you know, the, such sacrifices need to be made um, for the sake of fate, God, nature, whatever, whatever particular uh, altar she is kneeling at. Anyhow, in this uh, scene, another revelation is that the bomb was built uh, over by, you guessed it, Dharma. Side note, I particularly like the fact that when we first see um, the others in the army camp, it has this feel of being pre-Dharmaville. Um, 
and then the fact that <laughs> it is in a certain sense i mean of course dharma you know they don't turn the the, the tents into the dharma uh, hut you know or dar- dharma homes but it's this nice little um you know whatever makes made that a good spot for the army tents whether it was the army who chose that and then the others moved in or just the others using uh the the, the materials um just a really nice um I don't know it's a it's a nice notion that this is a place to 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 you know let your roots grow despite the fact that there's a nuclear bomb beneath it. Um, Eloise says that they can uh, sneak back in, um, and of course there's that. Well, not so much because Jack and Kate kind of burned their bridge and didn't some other people. Well, the show then moves to some of those other people. Sawyer being interrogated by our pal, good old Stu Radzinski. Stu gives the ultimatum to talk right now or else Sawyer is dead. It's a scary line that they use to break the act, but after it, Sawyer is just bloodier and still being hit. He didn't talk right then and he's not dead, but such is, I suppose, the nature of act breaks. Juliet tries to stop the beating and Sawyer tells her that there's no sense talking and after that there's a dark wonderful little moment as phil who's been been in the background for the entire scene he figures out how to get to sawyer he figures out the key to sawyer's heart and he starts smacking juliet around now the show has been pretty zippy up to this point but here perhaps to save our sensibilities not wanting to see a woman get beaten uh another dharma guy comes in and uh outs the fact that there's the that there were the last minute uh sub add-ons of kate jack and hurley with that we cut to hurley packing up some dharma food and sneaking out see how there's this you know connectivity to it all from dan's uh from dan's point of view and the end of last episode to people who just witnessed it kate and jack to their capture to you know where are you from 30 years later and all this kind of uh it, it, it's a nice kind of connection that they do here certainly it's not the first time that they've done it in an episode of lost but it's it's nice it's really well done anyhow we have hurley packing up some dharma food and sneaking out seen only by dr chang who by the way is wearing a particularly well-made dharma the windbreaker um hurley meets up with Jin and miles after they ponder whether to go to the beach or to rescue Sawyer and Juliet, well, that's when it becomes Chang time. Dr. Chang, what are you doing here? I could ask you the same question. Well, we asked you first. Your friend Faraday said that you were from the future. I need to know if you was telling the truth. Dude, that's ridiculous. What year were you born? What year? Uh, 1931. You're 46? Yeah. Yes, I am. So you fought in the Korean War? There's no such thing. Who's the President of the United States? All right, dude, we're from the future. Sorry. It's true, then? You are my son. 
Yeah, it's true. Your friend, the physicist, he also told me to evacuate everyone I could off the island. He said there was going to be a massive accident at the Swan. Now, is that true? He's been right about everything so far. If Faraday said get people off the island, I'd do it. Well, then let's hope he knows what he's doing. You know, considering the amount of time that we've spent wondering about Dr. Mark Wickman, about Dr. Marvin Candle, all those, uh, all those uh, pseudonyms that, uh, that Pierre Chang has gone by, uh, particularly, you know, the amount of time that we spent in season two picking apart orientation films and the hatch and what's wrong with this guy's hand. There's, there's some sort of chronology of his hand is hurt or he has a fake hand here but not there. With all of that in mind, it's so nice to see that the creepy, mysterious movie man, when he is himself, that he can trust his heart and do what's right. And, um, you know, Chang is not a uh, is not a dynamic character in the show. Um, I, I think it's kind of his reputation uh, outshadows the actual presence of the uh, of the character later on. But it's just it's it's nice to see the character um, being so genuine and kind of also being intelligent enough to to accept the illogic of what's going on in terms of the time travel business. Anyhow. Uh, with that, the story cuts to Camp Otherton, uh, with the very, very wise, very forward-looking, uh, and almost heavy-handed observation by the uh, young Widmore that Dead Dan looks familiar. He, of course, uh, being the Dead Dan's father. And I'll just pause here to note that I, I found, when I first watched, I found on my rewatch that there is a bit of an unfamiliarity, I find, with young Eloise and young Widmore. Uh, certainly they're characters that we know well, um, but somehow their faces don't quite, I don't want to say match, because obviously they're different actors, but they don't quite, they don't quite sync up somehow. It feels like they're play-acting the young versions of these characters. Uh, perhaps it's not helped by some of the later Widmore flashbacks like Widmore getting uh, kicked off the island where they have Allendale in a, in a wig um, there's just something to it where it doesn't feel like the characters that we know perhaps that speaks to the iconic performances of Allendale and Finola uh, O'Flanagan um, as the, the main actors of those characters but there's just something that doesn't quite fit um, and, and indeed, it probably is just, you know, what happens when you have such great professional, uh, I mean, all the actors are professional, but kind of, uh, you know, such well-experienced actors as Dale and uh, 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 O'Flanagan that to have younger people playing them, it just doesn't quite match up with all the nuances that those two greats uh, bring. Anyhow, uh, back to the plot. Ellie covers up her son's body and then uh, declares Jack and Kate free and being taken to the bomb. Uh, by the way, at this point, Richard spells out, perhaps I think for the dullards at home, that uh, the other guy there is indeed Widmore. 
Anyhow, with that, we flash forward to Richard, Ben, and Locke. Uh, and it's another great, great instance of Smokey being vague about his Locke past and someone else, this time Richard, filling in the details. Uh, you know, we have Richard saying things like, but Ben turned the wheel and we were sitting on a log, we being Richard and Locke, uh, and then you were gone. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's hiding in plain sight as, as Smokey has been doing. Um, uh, at this point, Smokey Locke talks about being in charge and then they, they go off to the plane. What plane? Richard asks. Why, it's our old, reliable plane that we, we keep returning to. Uh, it's almost more iconic, I, I think, than perhaps 815. It is, of course, the plane that killed Boone, brought Yemi, and hid the Pearl. And what comes next is, I think, for first-time viewers, it's a cute little explanation. However, for the round-trip viewers, for these multiple multiple views that we can have, what happens next is actually a terrifying example of Smokey tugging at the strings of those around him. All right, Richard, listen very carefully because you're only going to have about three minutes to get this right. Get what right? A man's about to walk out of the jungle. He's been shot in the leg. You'll need this to get the bullet out. I'm sorry, John. I'm no, just listen. This is the important part. You're going to need to tell him that he has to bring everyone who left back to the island. And when he asks how to do that, you tell him he's going to have to die. My take on all that is that bringing everyone back seems, to Smokey anyway, to be absolutely incidental. It's a surface of the fact that it's already been done. The key is that Smokey needs Locke dead, needs a replacement that has already occurred to happen again. So the instructions from a wise and mighty Richard, I think end up being merely an assurance uh, on Smokey's part to just simply keep control. With that act break, then uh, we see Locke, the real Locke, dealing with his bullet wound in the familiar scene where Richard shows up. There's a great sense of relief to the scene of the aha as the archive scene replays. Uh, and then, uh, as was the case at the top of the episode, uh, with, with another scene from another previous episode, uh, this scene becomes the, uh, the background for Ben and Smokey watching. I'm referring, of course, the, the Daniel death scene, which was the background for Kate and Jack talking at the top of this episode. Um, ben wonders if Locke finds it as an out-of-body experience watching Richard uh, help the presumed, well, really helping Locke, but if the presumed Locke finds it to be an out-of-body experience, Smokey's answer is smug and darkly amusing, working, as always, as a Locke line, and uh, more importantly, a Smokey line. His response is, it's something like an out-of-body experience. I'm paraphrasing, but it's just this wonderful, you know, Locke would say that, but Smokey gets to have a little laugh on the inside over it. There's a bit more conversation at that point where Ben just starts to sniff out that Locke isn't as dialed into the goodness of the island as we might think. But just as Ben is starting to realize that, it's interrupted by the real Locke popping away. What just happened? 
Where did you go? To give Richard his compass back. Want the bullet? Keep it. Everything go all right? Well, you, you seem pretty convinced. Especially when I said you were going to die. Certainly glad that didn't have to happen. Actually, Richard, it did. There it is, by the way. The admission that Locke died. It's hidden in plain sight. So easily connected to the idea that dead is dead. But the story's pace help hides this, this revelation, this admission, as things flash back to Chang entering security to call for an evac, uh, to find, uh, this is the security office, that is to say, he bursts in to call for that evacuation, to find that not only is Sawyer bloodied, but Radzinski, in, a, in a, an important moment, I would argue, Radzinski has declared himself in charge, and there's little opposition from Horace, who, uh, you know, <laughs> a bonus in the casting department is that uh, is that uh, the, the guy that plays Horace is on the smaller end uh, or shorter end and the guy that plays Rosinski is on the taller end. So there's kind of this, I don't know, there's this there's this uh, wild-eyed dominating nature to Rosinski that we've seen before and here it's kind of coming to fruition. Uh, with that, Sawyer offers info for seats on the sub because again, this episode isn't about payoff uh, as much as it is setting up the pieces for the finale. Uh, and with that offer, the story moves to Eloise, Kate, and Jack looking to break into Dharmaville by way of an underwater... Well, they don't call it a hatch, but it kind of functions as a hatch, just not the hatch type of hatch. You know what I mean? Anyhow, it's also the perfect time for Kate to run away from a commitment. I know, I'm surprised. And she decides to, darn it, Kate, run away from the mission at hand. On the one hand, you know, is Kate always running? Is this a return to the trope of her character? Yes. Is it, is it sort of a tired old song at this point? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a bit of both. Um, certainly it lets, you know, kind of Super Team Alpha be the ones to, uh, the ones to make their way into uh, where the bomb is, that of course consisting of... Uh, Eloise, Saeed, Jack, and uh, and Richard, as will be, the team will be formed in a moment. But it's it's not. It doesn't feel like the show at its most successful when they're sitting back and kind of relying on Kate to return to the person that she always is. That's all. That's all. Anyhow, uh, so Kate, here Kate is about to run. The others try and stop her, and they're just about to fire. Now the characters might not know it. But the writers know that it's late in the act and uh, things have got to get wrapped up for the act. Uh, thus, the unseen, then seen Saeed shoots the, uh, the <laughs> I believe, unnamed non-Eloise, non-Richard other. That non-Eloise, non-Richard other is dead. And with that, the act ends. After the break... Jack is uh, wrapping up, filling in Saeed on the bomb plan. Kate is filling Saeed on the Ben Not Dead plan. The scene itself feels dark and muddy and tension-filled. And, you know, the three of them are unsure what they're going to do. However, functionally, it's just kind of a transitional scene. There's not a lot of pizzazz to it, really. It's just sort of 
them sitting around sharing information, which is, at least it's well acted. It's well shot. It's well written. Uh, I think it it is uh, presented in such a way so that we're not particularly bored by the fact that they're just kind of getting everybody up to speed. Anyhow, with that, the story moves to the sub-dock, where Hurley, Miles, and first through, you know, seen through the binoculars, there's first we, Charlotte, and then uh, more we, baby Miles, are shown leaving with their parents. Uh, with that, it's then witnessed that the aforementioned Sawyer and Juliet show up, providing a reminder that the couple can find any happiness at all, just so long as they are together. Who by Microsoft? Excuse me? Then we'll bet the Cowboys in the 78 Super Bowl. We're gonna be rich. Look, I'm sorry. I should have listened to you and you wanted to get on this up three years ago. Why'd you talk me out of it? Come on, Bethlore. Get in. It's a lovely, lovely scene, and obviously they're trying to shore up the presentation of the romance ahead of the sad, sad deed that's going to be done in Incident Part 2. With that, Sawyer takes one look back, and the scene seems to just wonderfully, wonderfully sell the impossible, but they aren't coming back. Good riddance. With that, the story returns to Jack saying his hopefully final goodbye to Saeed and then swimming under the water to get to the vaguely temple-looking set. Now, it's worth remembering that Lost, uh, I believe this is accurate, Lost had two sound stages and only one wet set uh, amongst those two. Uh, Or wet sound stage, whatever the proper term is. Bottom line is this, the little pools they swim out of is the same location that they uh, that once housed the caves, um, and it would house the full temple again. Uh, so we're kind of, you know, particularly that little pool that they come out of uh, in this episode. I kind of couldn't help but wondering, you know, if you put some rocks around the edge, if you put some, you know, <laughs> the Adam and Eve bodies over there, you know, that it would be a nice little, <laughs> nice little return to the familiar uh, confines of season one. Anyhow, with that, Eloise swims up and, by the way, looks particularly lovely. Uh, And then behind her uh, is uh, Saeed, who's also followed them, who I think deep down we know he shouldn't be sitting out the fight. Uh, Saeed uh, has the rather grim line, uh, something on the lines of, if it works, great. If not, then at least we're out of our misery. With that, the story, which again, trucking along, serving many masters as it goes back and forth, back and forth. The story returns to the beach with Smokey Lock, Ben, and Richard returning. Uh, Ben and Richard look absolutely tired, but Locke, unsurprisingly, doesn't seem to have a tired bone in his body. Uh, Fake as it is, he's gleeful and energetic. Now, I know I'm repeating myself, but once again, the acting here out of Terry O'Quinn presents Smokey Locke as maniacal and sickly sweet, this time as he speaks to the group. Hello, everyone. My name is John Locke. I've been told that for some time, you all have been accepting orders from a man named Jacob. 
And yet, oddly enough, it seems that no one has actually seen him. Now, I'm sure there are very good reasons why his existence and whereabouts are a secret. I just don't know what they are. And to be honest with all of you, if there's a man telling us what to do, I want to know who he is. This man, Jacob, can he tell us how to bring Jin and the rest of our people back here? Absolutely. Richard has agreed to show us where we need to go. So I'm going to go and see Jacob right now. And I'd like all of you to come with me. My only complaint in that, that wonderfully shocking, exciting, you know, twisty-turny scene is that Sun seems to be tasked with offering up everybody's hopes and dreams with the clunky line, Can Jacob help me find Jin? It's kind of written and worse delivered in such a way where you almost could add uh, you know, uh, other others saying... Can Jacob help me lose five pounds? Can Jacob help me scramble an egg inside the shell? Organize my bills? Etc. Etc. Say la vie. At any rate, uh, Locke at this point is met with adoration and attaboy pats on his back, leaving for Richard to privately wonder if Locke will be trouble. Ben, in this wonderful moment of transparent, uh, transparency, mumbles back, why would you think I tried to kill him? It's so great to see Richard looking incredulous, but Ben is so earnest that the motivation of the act end is clear to make we, the audience, start to question exactly how good this mysterious lock is. After the break, Sawyer and Juliet are handcuffed in the sub, not in the fun way, but happily wondering what their future holds at the prospect of being free, truly free. It's a quiet, heartfelt scene where they just simply profess their love to each other. It's just a simple uh, scene. Uh, there's not, not much to it. There's not kind of not worth playing the clip, in part because uh, it's, it's carried so much by the acting. But let's not forget what's the dramatic purpose of it. It's building a wall for the show to knock down in two episodes' time. With that, the scene uh, wraps up with Kate rather oddly having been caught on her return into town. She's added to the handcuffed bunch, and there's the standard, you know, cool scene of get ready to dive, clear the bridge, two, three, four, prepare. Unfortunately, the interior goings-on of, you know, twisty-turny and levers being pulled inside the sub, the actual external sub-departure and sinking is done with some very, very lousy CGI effects. Oh well. You do what you can do on a TV budget and a TV uh, you know, a TV schedule, a TV deadline. With that, we're back under the Dharma City, with Saeed questioning the whole plan again to Jack. And Jack, who let's not forget, is fast becoming the man of faith. He says that, you know, he trusts the plan, he trusts Eloise. With that, you know, the idea that they need to move this bomb, they uncover the very big, very unwieldy, very heavy jughead, and Eloise asks, now what? Which is a good bit of timing, because we're kind of asking the same question, aren't we? But, of course, the answer is not in the stars for tonight. The story instead moves to the others leaving for the pilgrimage to Jacob. Ben, who, of course, 
should we expect anything less? He's playing both sides, and you know, he always does it. He's doing it here. However, along the way, he uncovers some very, very big truths. Beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, so far. Richard had some concerns. Concerns about what? This pilgrimage to Jacob makes him uncomfortable. He's expressed reservations about whether or not you know what the hell you're doing. I appreciate you bringing this to my attention, Ben. I know we've had our differences in the past, John. But I'm here to follow you now. So if you need Jacob to help you reunite your people, then I'll do whatever. I'm not interested in being reunited with my people. What do you mean? You told son. I know what I told her, but that's not why we're going to Jacob. Then why are we going to Jacob? So I can kill him. In my book, it's not, strictly speaking, a very, very strong ending. Granted, we're about to head into the season finale, so perhaps there isn't much need to whisk us away next week. But to me, it just didn't have a ton of oomph to it. Now, I'll grant you, it is shocking, to be sure, but it's almost a better ending the second time around. First-time viewers don't know Jacob, don't completely accept him as being real, I think. Sure, he's been talked about since season three, and implied at as the great man since season two. But it's, you know, as first-time viewers, it's just, you know, it's possible that it's just some legend. Um, and, and thus, I think, as written, as originally presented, that's why it's not a great hook at the end of the, at the, end of the episode. Now, granted, as I said, on repeat view, we know that Jacob is the kindly, true, and uh, well-meaning protector of the island, so the oomph is almost better then. With that, let's move on to Lostpedia to see the bits and pieces I've missed. Uh, Lostpedia has five uh, good little bits here. First is, uh, in this episode, the submarine logo is introduced. So there you go. Next, uh, the, uh, the Richard Compass, which I'll... Uh, conclude the trivia by talking about uh it's the same one uh that has been previously seen by Locke in uh, 1961 as a small child also unbeknownst to Jack and Kate a young Ben recovering from Saeed's shot is resting inside Richard's tent in the other's camp penultimately and this is a, a good one although he is still listed for the rest of the season Jeremy Davies plays Daniel makes his final appearance as a main credited cast member until the series finale, the end. So that's it for Dan for the next uh, next good chunk of weeks. Lastly, to go back to that compass, fun, fun little bit here. The compass exists in a self-contained temporal paradox in that it is never created. Okay, here we go. Richard gives the compass to a time-shifting Locke, who then returns it to Richard in the 1950s. This was intentionally written into the story by lost producers. So I kind of like that, that it's just this, it's just this loop. And uh, they, they, they know it doesn't entirely make sense, but they go with it anyway. With that, let's look ahead to next week and the following week, which would be 516, The Incident Part 1, 
And then in two weeks' time, 517, The Incident Part 2. And with that, the fifth season of Lost will have concluded on that sad note, on that, that fade to white. And in a, you know, The Incident is such a wonderful episode. And I think that uh, the, the whole shape of it, particularly the, the ending, I think in many ways is a, is a trial run of sorts for the season finale. We, of course, will talk about that in due course in the coming weeks. Uh, so with that, we now have uh, episode 515, Follow the Leader in the Bag. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Next week, I definitely will be including some more uh, of the feedback that uh, some of you have sent in, called in, etc. I sense this, this would probably be a longer podcast. I wanted to uh, make my time count because we don't... Uh, we don't all have that time-traveling ability that some of our lost friends do. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Talk to you all again next week for 516, The Instant Part 1. Take care, everybody, and bye-bye. Tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun.